Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1997 film Wag the Dog. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing well. Happy New Year. <clears throat> Barrett, um, I have distinct memories of watching this movie. I had I have not seen this, had not seen this since um since 1997 i don't remember whether i saw it in theaters or whether i saw it at home but i know i saw it 97 early 98 uh what is your history with this film yeah i remember distinctly for some reason on this one sam i remember seeing it in the theater and i remember which theater i saw it in uh which is a theater in roseville that no longer exists um Aside from that, all I had was one distinct memory of one scene, and that was really about it, um, which is always, to me, a little depressing when I revisit these films and realize that not only do I not remember ahead of time, but even as it unspools in front of me, it doesn't ring any bells. Uh, so that was it for me. Kirsten Dunst running with the Tocitos, uh, that was just burned into my brain and that was about it it's funny that you say that because my takeaway from this movie from remembering this movie was that i had there were a few things that stuck with me but they stuck with me in like deeply indelible ways but the rest of this movie i just had no i knew like i knew what it was about if somebody asked me i could have said well here's what it's about but um i didn't remember thinking anything about this movie i you know I, I didn't remember specifics um and it was such an interesting movie to watch then um being this have and, and what's what's funny is certain things uh came back to me i will reveal some of these things as we uh as we go through today um one of the things that jumped out at me is <clears throat> um and this is not about watching the movie but as i prepared to watch it is i saw who it was directed by mm -hmm. so this is a barry levinson movie yeah um and uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about Levinson as a director. I know if you were to have asked me, you know, who is Barry Levinson as a director, I would have listed three movies, which seem very different than this one. Um, and those are, it's kind of his run in the, uh, mid late eighties. So movies like the natural rain man, good morning, Vietnam. This is what I think of as Barry Levinson. Um, this movie's very different than those. So, so who is Barry Levinson as a filmmaker? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Sam. I mean, it, it's difficult to say what is a Levinson film because he's capable of making, really interesting films that are, I think, um, provocative and creative all the way through, like this film and Rain Man. Uh, he makes films like Good Morning Vietnam, which in my view falls apart halfway through um, because it, it, ha it has a tonal shift that it, in my view doesn't work at all. Um, he has, um, he's really well known for what's called the Baltimore Tetralogy, uh, Diner, Tin Men, Avalon, and Liberty Heights. And I think those are really kind of good slice of life uh, movies, and then he's got some some terrible films like Toys, uh, which was you know one of the worst films of of the eighties. Um, his the last film he did was one with Bill Murray called Rock the Casbah, which is is pretty pretty weak. So I would call him a a very inconsistent director, um, and I'm not sure that there is a a distinctive Levinson style. I think the most distinctive element of his work would be something like the Baltimore Tetralogy, which is kind of semi-autobiographical. Um, this, this is clearly such a great example of a um, a dark comedy satire. And I have to say, I did not remember how dark this this movie is. It's all, It's pretty masterful, I think, in terms of um, if you're paying attention, how how 
truly, truly dark this movie is. Um, so, I mean, it made me think of, uh, I mean, the, the, the closest comparison in terms of that is something like Strange Love, which is also a really fun, really funny movie to watch. And if you, you can't help but continuing to think about it and continuing to think about some of the, um, the messages that it sends. So I thought this was, um, that's one of the things that I didn't remember. I mean, I, I, I knew what it was about, but I didn't remember how dark this movie is, or especially around its edges, but not even just around its edges. Yeah, I think that I, I, I appreciate the connection to Strangelove because I was thinking, you know, we can connect this movie with a few others that we've seen. Obviously, Strangelove, uh, to a certain extent, Network. Um, I think, to me, the darkness of the film, I, I would call, I, I would contrast the darkness of this film with the darkness of Strangelove in, 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 in this way. I think Strange Love is dark because it's a film about the fundamental flaws and self-contradictions of human nature and how those are, are, are manifested. Um, I think this is more a cynical film about the use of technology. Um, now, you could argue that ultimately that gets back to some darkness within people, but I don't think the film actually is as interested in that kind of existential analysis of human nature as it is about this is what happens when you give people certain technological tools and certain political and capitalistic goals. Um, the one way in which I think the film does look a little bit at, the, at, at where human nature can lead you, of course, is the downfall of the Dustin Hoffman character because he has a fundamental need to, uh, to, have, to be praised uh, and to be recognized. And that's, of course, what leads to his demise. One of the things that, that that where I think this movie works in terms of of some of these darker ideas is that it and it's things that happen outside of the film, but happen and maybe this is just to me as a viewer, and it could be again a product of the age I was when this movie came out. So this came out in ninety seven, so I was twenty years old when this came out. Is that this movie plants seeds of ideas that keep working on me? and on my mind and on my memory. Uh, and it makes me question things that I'm seeing on screen, but it also makes me start to question things in life. So one of the indelible things about this movie, if I had remembered nothing else about it, and it's something that, um, that the Robert De Niro character mentions four or five times in the movie is a smart bomb dropping down a chimney. Because I remember, so when the, the first Gulf War uh, starts or when that happens, I'm like 14 years old. And I remember sitting and watching CNN and I remember being blown away by that image. And, 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 and then throughout the movie, the first half of the movie, he keeps bringing up that scene. And it's so he keeps bringing up this, this scene, which is of something that I encountered at a very impressionable age. And then he start he calls that into question and he's like, well, they just kept showing that one thing. They kept telling you all these other things and you kept seeing that one shot. And then he's like, well, how do you know that building wasn't made out of Legos? I was there when we filmed it. And it, it like, so it, it both makes you within the film questions, the things you're seeing along with the characters, but outside of the film, kind of in a more meta way, it makes me wonder like, am I manipulated by things? Cause even though I'm not saying that that shot of that smart bomb was not real, mm -hmm. but, the fact of the matter is I saw that shot hundreds of times in 1991, 92. And it's like, what effect did that one video have on me? I feel like, like, so, so, so to me, a part of the, the darkness of this movie or the, what I find really powerful about this movie is the way that it 
works on me and causes me to ask some of those questions. And, and, and Sam, that has such a deep resonance right now in, uh, you know, this is another film, like when we looked at Network, we talked about how uh, Network may have seemed ridiculous in 76, and now it seems though it didn't even go far enough. Well, we look at this film and we think about the, the debates that we have in our society, the division we have in our society over what's real and what isn't real, and people saying, well, I saw it on YouTube. Um, and 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 we want to say, well, you how can how can you possibly believe that? But as you're saying, how how can we be sure that what we're looking at is actually the real thing? Um, I have a I have an acquaintance who's a uh, moon landing uh, a skeptic. Uh, we and, you know, and, and of course you want to say, well, how can you be how can you possibly believe that the moon landing didn't happen? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, when you look at a film like this, we can certainly create some things that look pretty realistic, and so maybe it's not that far fetched. So it does it does get you kind of questioning what is what is real and what isn't real unless you're actually there. Yeah, I, I definitely, as I was watching this, thought about all of the conspiracies theories about uh, Kubrick, especially like mm -hmm. being the one who filmed the moon landing. And it's like, oh, this is kind of a movie about that, too. Like like in, in just this kind of way of like, what are these iconic, you know, indelible things that 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 take on this broader, th th this bigger meaning? But it's like, but, you know, where do those things come from? Or even, um, you know, when when Conrad Breen is talking about. Uh, military slogans, and he says, "We remember the slogans, we remember the image. We don't even remember the war." I mean, and he talk, one of the things he talks about is the the soldiers ra raising the flag at Iwo Jima, which is a real thing that happened, but the photograph is a staged photograph yes. because they didn't get it right, you know, or, um, or you know, th things like that. So, like, like I, I find that that stuff really um, works on me. It also, this is also a a, a film which you know, at its core is about a conspiracy, you know, and mm -hmm. a and, and, and we live in a world of conspiracy theories and things like this. And it's like, man, this is about how those things can start to worm into your head, you know, and we're seeing it from the opposite side, not the paranoid side of somebody who thinks there is a conspiracy, but we're from the side of like, oh, this is actually a conspiracy playing out. Well, and, and of course, the other, the other thing is important to think about this coming out in 97 is then not long afterwards, of course, the Bill Clinton scandal happens. And um, what do you know? Uh, days after the scandal uh, news broke, um, Clinton ordered uh, military strikes against Af Afghanistan and Sudan. Uh, and during his impeachment pr proceedings, he uh, bombed Iraq. So it's like, you know, is it life imitating art or art, imi art imitating uh, life? Um, then he had a bombing campaign against Yugoslavia in 99. So it's not that, it's not, that's the problem. It's not that far-fetched, really. Well, okay, I'm glad you brought up Clinton Lewinsky right now because <clears throat> I had a chilling moment watching this movie, um, which is before... Uh, before I rewatch this movie, if you had asked me three weeks ago, when did you, when and how did you find out about the Clinton Lewinsky scandal? Mm. I would have told you I was walking through an airport and I turned and looked at a TV and we, and everybody in that room was watching this as it came out. And then I watched this movie again and said, that never happened. That's this movie. But I just projected my memory of, of of this movie i projected the clinton scandal onto it because as i was watching that scene i was like this looks exactly like what i remember when i learned about that scandal and then i'm like i was never in an airport that's just something i saw in this movie which again like i gotta be honest that it sort of freaks me out about my memory a little mm -hmm. bit of like how how much do these images really they really do work on me in that way too or it's like 
I, it all becomes the same thing. <laughs> um, so, so that was, that was kind of a freaky moment uh, to, to realize that this, 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 this moment that I thought was so very real in my life was actually this movie, which is, you know, happening before that, but, you know, kind of mirrors those things happening in reality. <laughs> um, one of the things that I thought was great about how this movie was made and, and, and a really, really important choice is how the film deals with the president mm -hmm. <clears throat> that the president mm -hmm. is um, not never on screen, but almost never fully on screen. I think right. that the most we see him is on a TV being filmed, you know, at, at the, um, the Boca Raton airport, like you actually mm -hmm. see, see the president there. So they did cast somebody as the president, um, <clears throat> but it avoids sort of showing him directly. Uh, and this leads you to almost forget about his specifics mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it's like so you can kind of cast that that person yourself which i think makes it when the clinton Lewinsky scandal happens then it, it makes it easy to cast that way if you want but you could cast other mm -hmm. you pick your pick your president or your fictional president you could cast yourself but it also distances you a little bit from his actual crime because the other thing I forgot about this movie, and I didn't forget it, it's just if if you had asked me what the the like the incident that causes this movie into motion, I would have described it right, but I, then I would have said that can't be right. It can't be that the movie was basically about a president and pedophilia, and it, and in fact, like it actually is, and be and they manage to put you on the side of the people trying to cover that up, yes. and you can't help but root for them even though the whole time, and then I was watching the movie thinking, wait a minute, they're not going to get away with this. Right. Because like, that's not how, that's not how stories are supposed to work. We're not supposed to have this awful thing happen and get away with it. And then there's the, just the great moment with Conrad Breen where at the, at the beginning where, um, uh, where, where Ames says, well, do you want to know, you want to know what happened? And he says, it doesn't matter what happened. Yeah. It's a story, yeah. you know, whether, whether it happened or not. And so, so you never know. And you, but, uh, I think that is this weird sleight of hand that the, that the the people making this film do, which also causes you to ask some questions about yourself to yeah. say like, why was why am I on the side of these people? Well, it's kind of you know, Sam. It's kind of a classic Shakespearean um, approach to characterization, right? Where the villains uh, and and their plans are so engaging that you find yourself, um, as you said, almost almost rooting for them. You know, Macbeth and Iago and, and people like that are, they're horrible people, but at the same time, they're so clever and, and they're, they're so committed to what they're trying to accomplish and they're ambitious that there's something about it that you think, wow, maybe they can actually pull this off. Um, I think there's one other, maybe I'm, I, I'll date myself now. I think there's one other kind of political shadow hanging over this film, uh, and that is, it's, it's, the, it's the Nixon presidency. Um, now, of course, Nixon was not a pedoph uh, pedophile, but uh, the whole idea that you don't bring the soldier home until after the election. I mean, Nixon won 72 for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons he won 72 was because he, was, he had promised that he was going to end the Vietnam War. Uh, and people believe that promise, and it was partly on the strength of that promise that he he won he won the election. Uh, and it's interesting to me that you get reference to that towards the end of the film when they talk about Kissinger's Peace Prize, 
which mm -hmm. kind of takes you back to and and then of course you know then we find out the whole thing's been manipulated by both by both Kissinger and and, and, and Nixon mm -hmm. um so I think there's that to me is kind of a part of the the other backstory to to this film is a film about how politics manipulates appearances well and you know one of the 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 powerful through lines of this is like you can never tell this story right you can never tell like this is this sort of constantly comes up and i actually love the the um uh the casting of de niro playing like a kind of gruff guy but sort of amiable guy who you don't really know. I mean, he constantly gets asked, "What is it you do for the president?" and he and he never answers that question. And then you sort of, but there are there are these few moments of menace, like when he's talking to Kirsten Dunst, um, and she's asking about this, and she's like, "Well, what would happen?" And he says, "Well, we go to your house." I can't remember if he says, "We go to your house and we kill you, or we kill your family." But it's just like, <laughs> oh, he just said the thing right there, yeah. you know. And then obviously the obviously it's kind of the the ending of this movie as well. Um, this is so also so clearly like a. Uh, satire of hollywood and um how in the entertainment industry and how movies get made um <clears throat> and i thought i think that dustin hoffman is just astounding in this movie uh you know it's, it's a little robert evans it's a little lots of other people too um but just the I love all of the, they're, they're just these little things that sort of happen, happen throughout it. Like that he is this character who, whenever anything goes bad, it's like, Oh, you think this is bad? Well, you know, and he starts to tell these stories. I also love that he never really gets to finish his stories, but he's such a good, it's such a good performance that it's like, I'm disappointed. I didn't get to hear the end of the DeMille story. And I'm disappointed. I didn't get the hen hear the end of the uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse story and things like this. And it's like, I, so, so there's, I think this, this movie plays great as a, also just like a send up of Hollywood and especially like the, the uh, powerful Hollywood producer type. Yeah. Hoffman is, is really, I, I had forgotten how good he, he is in this film. Uh, as you said, channeling, channeling Robert Evans, although uh, he denied it was Evans. He said it was based on his own father uh, for, 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 for what, for what it's worth. Um, and it's just, you know, the film is so smartly written. I had forgotten that um, David Mamet was uh, one of the screenwriters and basically it's, it's Mamet's film. He kind of took a screenplay that or there's co there's, um, there's a co-credit on the screenplay, but it's really mo it's really mammoth. And I think that, uh, and, and I think one of the other reasons why Hoffman's performance is so um, memorable is because he gets such great lines. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, there's so uh, so many, especially towards towards the end of the film. For example, when he delivers the president's speech, the one the president doesn't want to give, and everybody is comes out of the room weeping, right? And and uh, Mott says this is this is politics. This is politics at its finest. Uh -huh. and, and after he gives the speech, he says, "A simple quirk of fate. I could have gone this way. It's all it, it's all a change of wardrobe." So the idea, you know, the politics is really just um, entertainment uh, in 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 a in a different in a in a different context. Yeah, I mean, you um, get lines like and entertainment is politics, right? Yeah. The, the 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 two things are interchangeable. Yeah, you get the lines like "war is show business." It's a pageant, right? Yes. Well, and and even when they pull up to uh, Tamatsa's house, and she's like, "Wow, Hollywood producers live like this. It's bigger than the White House." Yes. There's this kind, and and there's a power struggle between the president and Mats in terms of like who's running this. So 
mean, the great part about the DeMille story is that he's interrupted by a phone call from the president and he can't accept that Ames would take the phone call from the president. It's like, I'm in the middle of a story. Can't he wait? <laughs> yes. Or when they're, when they're filming the, um, the uh, Albanian girl and the president wants a white kitten and he's like, I hate when they meddle. It's, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, there, it is this, there's this sort of background power struggle about whose whose picture is this you know is this you know is uh is neil able to shut down the war it's like well he can't do that this is mine you know and, and it's so so it, it there's this blending about and it, you know and it asks this question about like where does real power lie does it lie in political power does it lie in sort of the power of of industries like the entertainment industry to create images and things like this. Um, I also find it interesting that when, when uh, uh, Breen at the, you know, after they leave the white house and he says, I have to go see a Hollywood producer that like nobody stops in questions. Like, I mean, it's sort of a weird thing to throw out, but it's just like, okay, that's where we're going to Hollywood to see a producer. So. Well, I love the uh, that moment you just referred to about the president meddling with the white kitten. There, there, there is a perfect moment of the tail wagging the dog, right? Because uh, as far as uh, as Mons is concerned, it's his war, not the president's war. Uh, and so, you know, the 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 image is more important than the than the reality because the image is actually creating the reality. Right. Well, and and, and you know, on the other part of the you know, kind of blowing out the. Um, the kind of movie making thing is there's also I mean I love the idea of of we also need the fad king because it's not just the it's not just the picture it's the merchandising around it and you know and and uh, again there's this great moment when they sort of call into question are things that appear organic really organic like the you know talks about the the yellow ribbons and he's like and, and she gets halfway through the sentence of like what well, that was an organically occurring and then she just looks at him and realizes. <laughs> oh it was a put on like that was you know again so it's one of those moments where it, it causes you to step back and say okay i within the context of this movie it's telling me something but then it's like well okay let me think about things that appear organic like it, those wouldn't be difficult to and they and, and all of those things whether they started out as organic so many of those things became things that became merchandised and things like that 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 you know, whether it's the dog wagging the tail or the tail wagging the dog, there's, there's in the parlance of the movie, there's a back end on all of this, right? There's points at the end of all of this. Yeah. I mean, so, so 24 years on, you know, what, what is an actual organic movement and what is actually something created by the media since, since the media is now kind of omnipresent, it's really, again, difficult to disentangle what is organic and genuine versus what is what is created because the minute something happens we almost instantly create it as a meme or as some other kind of re reproducible uh, image um the another thing that i thought as much as this is a movie about making movies right that's that's at the core of this there's also the omnipresence of television and almost at at times a tension between television and the movie the quote unquote movie that they're making. I um, mean, the, 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 the film opens on a television commercial and there's a lot of shots of television screens being filmed, which you get this great, like, you know, 90s standard definition, like really low quality. So mm -hmm. that even seems like a commentary on like, well, this is what television mm -hmm. is. Um, but think of how many scenes in this movie have people watching television and getting information from, um, from television. 
even after the plane crash, right? There's they have that little TV that that's sort of just is playing in the background, and they start listening to uh, to the and end of the. I mean, this this comes to a head in the recording studio when uh, Congressman Neal gets on to declare the war over, and and even Breen says, "Well, of course it's over. I saw it on TV. It's over." <laughs> you know, it's like it's like it's this thing we've created and we're manipulating. But once it makes it there doesn't matter it's like that 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 becomes the kind of arbiter of truth yeah it's, it's a, there's there's a little touch of the 1980 film being there uh in in, in that sense because the, the peter sellers character who's whose reality is defined by what he sees on tv and he has no idea how to separate that that from what is actually the case and then that becomes the uh uh, straw that breaks the camel's back for for Mots at the end is throughout the movie he's he's commenting on how <clears throat> basically how great this thing he's making is and how schlocky these commercials are and when those commercials start to get credit that's where that's the thing that pushes him over the line is like I how dare they say that this is the thing that won him the election nobody knows about this thing that i did and it goes back to the nobody knows what a producer does a producer doesn't have a product that they can that they can point to there, there, there's no academy awards for producers and it's, <laughs> right. that's a line that comes out to haunt you so so yeah so he he gets one of the again he gets so many great lines he, he gets one of the wonderful one of the best lines they're looking out at the funeral and he says look at that that has a complete fraud and it looks 100% real. It's the best work I've ever done in my life because it's so honest. <laughs> <laughs> so the fraud is the most honest thing that, 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 he, that he's ever done. But, but again, he can't, you know, as I said earlier, he can't resist the need to take credit. Um, and, 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 you know, yeah, the straw that breaks the camel's back is this schlocky, low-res, um, kind of cliche campaign. Don't change horses in midstream. Uh, that's credited with winning with winning the election, right? And he just can't. Uh, he can't stomach that. I think, and you mentioned this. I think one of the best scenes in the movie is the um, the the scene where they're filming the the Albanian girl, um, just because that that's the, that's sort of the one the the like one moment of um, of like filmmaking filmmaking we get to see like that's that's the you know the, the the most movie making part of this and there's just so many little things as they're cycling through the the background i mean it, i think it's just that's such a well-written funny scene they're cycling through the the backgrounds it's like well can we add a bridge we need water we need this and i love the i don't even i don't uh, the the guy who's the I guess the maybe the director there or something, and he starts suggesting things, and he's like, "We need the ua ua and Frank, you know," and, and all of a sudden it's like, then they put the sirens on. And what what's cool is you you see them doing this, and it's ridiculous, you know. She has this Tostitos bag, and you know, and all stuff. But then you see a scene later, you see this thing show up on the news, and even though you've seen it created, you're like, it actually looks pretty convincing, and and it also looks like things you see on the news, and you know, and you're like. Oh, I, I guess, you know, like, again, it, it does just enough to make you question. And I think, I, I think that stuff's pretty great. What, what I love, a couple of things I love about the Tostitos bag, of course, and, you know, the obvious one is that it doesn't matter what she's holding or whether it's a bag of chips or a, or a cat. But the other thing this movie is really about is, um, the other thing it's satirizing is, is consumerism. Uh, and it's consumerism in both a literal and a figurative sense. Uh, so, you, so I think it's not an accident that it's a bag of chips, that it's something you actually eat. 
Uh, and at the same time, people are eating up these images. People are, are eating up these various views of reality. Uh, and then at the end, when you start talking about the merchandising rights, right? It's it's all about um, uh, about about cap about capitalism. So merchandising right, rights for the statue. Um, again, back to literal consumerism. Well, well they're going to sell a shoe burger with cheese and three hundred three sauce behind enemy lines or any time. Uh, they're going to get a which is a good line. <laughs> it's great. It's I mean that's perfect. It's uh, so again we're back to what's reality, what's satire. I mean, how is that different from you know just do it. Um, they want to get the copyright on the Albanian kitten. They're going to have a, a, a sneaker, air leopard. I mean, it's right. it's just they pile it on at the end, and it's like they really capture the way these uh, these events have a kind of momentum. It's kind of like a snowball effect, and the whole thing just kind of keeps getting getting bigger and bigger. Um, another scene that 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 is sort of apart from this that I, I found really interesting in part because it's a great it has a great performance from an actor that I love is the um, the CIA scene with William oh. H. Macy um, which I this is you know probably a year or two after Fargo so you get a little bit of Macy Fargo energy with a little bit more confidence as a CIA agent um, but you get this this um, tense moment when Ames thinks you know okay well everything's up and she starts confessing like all this stuff about medication she's on and all these things. And then, and then Breen makes this, this speech about like, uh, which is, it's this combination of, I think he's just throwing stuff at the fan to try to throw stuff at the wall to try to get something to stick. But at the same time, he is making this case of like, okay, CIA, the cold war is over. And clearly Breen has been a cold war operative as well. It's like the cold war is over. Who are you going to fight at? two front war again it's like it's not that anymore now it's this it's like you should you need to get on board with this because your purpose is going away too so at, at the same time that it seems like he's just throwing out anything to get out of this moment there's also sort of this sense i mean when he talks about the the war of the future is nuclear terrorism like mm. that's kind of interesting to think about you know four years later is 9 11 which isn't nuclear terrorism but it is like mm. oh the war on terror is the next thing, right? It's not yeah. necessarily this government or this or, or something like that. So it is that scene is kind of prescient in that way as well, where there is this sense of, you know, the, he actually there there's actually a message embedded in, in there that I think probably plays a little bit different five years later. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 it's, and it's kind of Conrad Breen's uh, Stanley Mott's moment because, you know, Mott's is the one who's over getting them out of these tough situations where his line is always piece of cake, piece of cake. Uh, but Breen really, and, and what I love about this is, is he, you, you think that he's fooled the CIA, but of course he ultimately hasn't. And so it, it, it's like they, they tiptoe from one disaster to, to, to the next. Um, but it is, you're right. He, it's, it's, you, you can watch the wheels kind of turn in William Macy's head as he listens to this thing. Yeah, maybe this makes a little bit of sense. And I'll kind of go with it for a while. Um, another thing that that we haven't mentioned that is uh, pretty central to this movie that I that I love and didn't remember is the music in this movie. Oh yeah. <clears throat> um, when he's talking to John on the phone, I did not realize that this was going to end up being Willie Nelson, who plays a not insignificant role in this movie <laughs> and is extremely funny in this movie. Um, well, yeah. The, the, well, the other thing I love about the music is um, is one more element of wagging the dog, and that is the 1984 element of you know rewriting history. 
that that I just thought was absolutely brilliant. You know, making this record, putting it, and then planting it in the Library of Congress, and then rediscovering this classic that nobody had re had remembered. I mean, to me, that was really, really brilliant. And, well, it and the music is good. And the fact that they got Merle Haggard to write a song as well. I mean, I couldn't believe that. Yeah, and 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 it's they they make this believable where it's like, you know, all we need to do is get the right person to say the right thing to somebody who has a platform. So like like for the Library of Congress thing, it's like, okay, so we're gonna put this in the stacks here. And then we're going to have somebody talk to a reporter and offhandedly mention, isn't there a song something because they know that this person can't help, but go look that up and then they find it. So, so what, one of the things that I, I loved about how the, the trick of this movie plays out is that <clears throat> they don't need to control everything. They just need to control mm -hmm. enough. So there, I mean, there's this great moment in the first press conference when they're watching it um, at Matz's mansion. And Mott's at first is like, well, this guy, he's there's there's no way he's going to get out of this. And they're watching it, and all of a sudden, the first question comes, and it's about Albania. And then there's questions about the B three bomber, and you just see Breen kind of nod his head. He's like, they're getting it. They're, it's like all yeah. we needed to do was plant enough. We don't need to um, plant journalists in the audience to ask the questions. We just need to say enough because we know people's tendencies, and as long as we do this then they're going to go along with us. Or, you know, they do the thing with the shoes where they're throwing it up in the trees. And first it's them, but then, you know, you go around, you get all these shots around the U.S. and you see this, you see the kids at the basketball game throwing shoes on the court. Like, that stuff's not a put-on. That's organic, <laughs> you know? But there is this sense of, like, all we need to do is just do enough to get it started, and the rest of this will kind of tumble into place. Um, I also loved the, uh, it's a, it's a small scene, but when we see the, uh, the Mots and the fad King and, um, uh, the Andrea Martin character talking about whether they vote. Cause I mean, they're, they're involved in this, you know, this big political, um, <clears throat> this, this big political conspiracy. Um, but they talk about why they vote and they have such very, or why they don't vote. And they have such very like, uh, great little, like, um, stupid reasons for not voting like i we got a little bit of baltimore in there when uh when mm. uh, dennis leary says i voted once when they did the fans vote for the all-star game i voted for boog powell and he didn't make it and after <laughs> that i just sort of lost you know That's lost right. interest um and then we get to the end of this movie uh and i was one this is another thing i didn't remember i was wondering how this was going to end because everything was directing towards like, well, what does Mott's want out of this? And he keeps saying, Oh, I don't want, I don't want an ambassadorship. Right? I, I don't even like to go to Brentwood. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't want that. And and there, but there is this sense of like, well, there's gotta be something at the back end of this. And, you know, he's already said like, Oh yeah, I do it just, just for a story to tell him like, well, you can't tell the story. He's like, I know that, but you get to this moment and then it's clear that he's not happy with the arrangement. And he even says, Oh, but you know, like, like, yeah, arrangements can change or deals can change or something. And that's, it's this moment where you, again, you see Breen sort of snap into, this is my job now. This is the thing that I do. And I did not remember that Mott's was going to be killed. <laughs> uh, and, and again, that's, that's this, it's a part of this movie that just is, is, is a, a very dark part of the satire is like, there is all of this like kind of fun in games of the Hollywood image making, you know, all of this stuff. 
but then there is also this very violent, scary thing that happens too. Um, and that I think puts a, an interesting exclamation at the end of this. Well, I, I think Sam, it's a reminder that, um, in this world, it seems to think it seems to suggest that everything is just appearance and manipulation of appearance, and that you know there really is no reality except for the reality that we we create for you. I think the reminder with, with what happens to Mots is no, they are playing for keeps, and there is the reality of death that that you know um, that ultimately he pays with his with his life because it. It looks like a big game, but it's it actually, but it's a pretty serious game, and the stakes are are really hot. Uh, and what and, and Mats, I think, has become so um, so kind of enthralled by his own image making that he really has lost contact or lost touch with the fact that there is actually a really hard reality. And that's what Conrad. That's how he. I think that's how he's different from Conrad Breen, because I think for Mots, it all is about manipulating appearances. I think Mots is completely caught up in the artificiality of what he does, whereas Breen knows that there is a hard reality that he is that he is manipulating. So I think it's the difference between thinking you can create a reality as opposed to you can manipulate a reality, but it's still it's still there. So ultimately, they are they are both similar characters, and yet they are deeply and fundamentally different mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in how they look at the world. So we've talked about performances here. We've talked about Hoffman and De Niro. Are there other performances, other smaller performances you want to talk about? Uh, well, you've already mentioned William Macy, which of course is one, is, is one, is one of my favorites, but you know, I, it's not a really small performance. So we got to talk about Woody Harrelson, uh, Woody Harrelson showing up as the, uh, as the, as, as the convict. Um, I just, you know, I, I enjoy Woody Harrelson in almost any role. And, uh, I think he's the, he's the, he's the, he's the right choice for that, for that particular part. Well, it's very funny because when they first show the picture of Schumann, I thought, man, that looks like Woody Harrelson. Like, I, again, I didn't look at the cast list for this. I thought, that's interesting. And then I thought, is he in this movie? And when he shows up and he doesn't even have to say anything, you look at his eyes and you're like, oh, they've made a mistake. <laughs> they've made a mistake with this choice. And this is, I love Woody Harrelson as well, but this is my favorite kind of Woody Harrelson where he's not the central character of a movie, yeah. but he shows up. Um, and and gives you this great small performance that kind of turns the movie on its head. Um, I, for example, I love him in No Country for Old Men. He has yeah. a very small role, but I think he's really great in it. Um, and what I, what I like about this is that there is sort of this sense that before we meet Schumann, there's this, the great scene where where they're talking about when do you reveal Schumann and um, and Mott's connects it to one of my favorite movies jaws and he says you know schumann is the shark he's he's you know you don't you don't put him in the first reel of the movie and uh and what's great is woody shows up and is kind of like the shark right like he's he takes over and it's like okay now this it all it feels like we're in a different movie now because now we're we're no longer in the movie studios or in the white house or in the middle of uh we're in the middle of the country things are uncertain and he is a very dangerous person and it's uh I, I like the way that the the story itself mirrors what what uh, Mats is talking about. I should also mention it's not an actor actor's appearance, but I do like the uh, the duet between Willie Nelson and Pop Staples. Uh, the fact that Pop Staples shows up, I think, is just is is fantastic. Yeah, and and again, like it's one of those things where the song is great and believable as something that would be in the like Library of Congress uh, folk 
folk traditions collection, uh, things like that. Um, last question that I have, and this is something that I was thinking about before watching this movie, and I've been thinking a lot about since, is how do you feel like, I mean, so this movie comes out in 1997, pre-Clinton uh, Lewinsky scandal. Um, how does this movie play in 2022 for you? Like, uh, how does it play for you? And like, imagine if this movie came out. I mean, there, there, there's some things about this movie that I feel like would be really hard to do today. Um, but how yeah. does this movie read in 2022? Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, as you're, as you're suggesting, Sam, we, you know, we are post Me Too. Um, you know, we've just watched the uh, the fall of uh, of Cuomo uh, in New York. Yet another politician involved in, uh, in a sex scandal. Um, and then I, I read an article. I had forgotten that a couple of years ago, Hoffman himself uh, was was the uh, was accused of sexual impropriety. And so, uh, you know, one one critic I read said it's kind of uncomfortable to watch this movie. If you think about those things, you think about Hoffman himself and the character always saying, "Oh, this is nothing. It's nothing." So I, I think. I, I think it, I think it, I don't think you could make that movie today. Uh, be, I think because of that, because so much has happened in terms of powerful men, whether men and men in both politics and the film industry. One thinks, of course, of um, uh, of uh, the producer Harvey um, Weinstein. Yeah, Harvey Weinstein. Uh, yeah. So I, I think that we've lost. Um, I don't know if I want to say we've lost naivete because I don't think we were very naive in 97, but I think that, that reality has kind of outstripped the film in that respect in that it's really, there's too much of this kind of thing going on to think that you can make a funny movie about it anymore. At least that that's my sense. Well, I think there's also the, the, like, um, you know, if you think about the last decade in terms of how we think about truth and politics and what those things mean, like this movie, it's funny because I was reading a couple different articles of people reading, watching this movie in 2020 um, during the election and, and kind of reevaluating it. And it was this weird combination of people talking about how prescient the movie seems, but also in some ways how quaint the movie seems, mm -hmm. um, you know, compared to uh, the world that we live in, um, where there is just like competing realities now. Like there is, it's hard to imagine this sense of like, well, you could get all of America on board with one sense of reality by manipulating the, I mean, it's, it is interesting that this movie is, it is a pre-internet movie. You know, this is a movie right. where, uh, where there are cell phones, but they are literally phones. They're not smartphones. There is not, you know, there's not the internet as a way to think about manipulating truth and conspiracy and those types of things. And that those things have a, um, uh, maybe they they feel a little bit less amusing of a topic that than than maybe it seemed back in in 97. Well, I think another big difference Sam is um the 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 movie kind of assumes that you can have a a, a kind of unified collective response. And I think about the polarization right now in our country and of course today being January 6th and the um anniversary of uh, of what happened at the Capitol a year ago. I, 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 it seems almost impossible, even though we're in the midst of this, uh, of this landscape in which media seems so manipulative, but it's almost impossible to anticipate that there could be any kind of a unified collective response to any kind of media. It seems like, you know, we live in our own echo chambers. You consume your media. I consume my media. If I'm a conservative, I'm, consu I'm consuming conservative media. If I'm a liberal, liberal media, et cetera, et cetera. It just seems like we're too both fragmented and polarized 
to think that a phenomenon like this could actually could actually happen. Right. And, and I mean, and, and another piece of that is just where we're at technologically. Like right. in, in 1997, the, the Albanian girl scene is kind of this like marvel of technology. And now anybody could do that with their phone. Yeah. I mean, like that's, that's kind of amazing to think about, you know, like, like that's, that's, it's not that long ago that this movie comes out 15. Uh, yeah. No. How many years ago would this have been? 25 years ago? 20, well, 24, 25. 25. Yeah. Like, you know, but, but it like, it's a, we carry around with us that whole studio. Like it's kind of an amazing thing. And not only the democratization of like who can create media, but who can just the democratization of distribution of media. Yeah. Um, you know, like there isn't this sense that, well, yeah, you go to a Hollywood producer and they, they're in charge of what images get out in front of people um, is like, that's just a very different world. Are there other things you want to talk about with this movie? Well, just two quick things. I wanted to mention that, uh, you know, we talked about Bill William Macy, and he was, uh, in the fall of 97, he was also in uh, Boogie Nights. Uh, several, I think we talked about this when we talked about Gattaca. A lot of really good films came out in the fall of 97. Uh, Tarantino's Jackie Brown, uh, Sweet Hereafter, Eve's Bayou, Goodwill Hunting, Ice Storm, Amistad. Uh, those were all uh, fall of 97 films. So it was a pretty, pretty good lineup. The other thing I want to say is uh, one of the reasons that I picked this film, as you will recall, is I wanted to think about the difference between uh, the kind of fraud that was committed in 1944 with uh, Hail the Conquering Hero and what technology makes possible here. But I also wanted to point out that um, this is a really, as we've said several times, this is a really clever script by David Mamet. He's one of our best uh, screenwriters. And I was gratified that in her review of the film in 97, Janet Maslin, the New York Times, made a direct connection between Preston Sturgis and David Mamet. Um, very different kinds of clever dialogue, and yet, and yet, in some ways, somewhat similar. And my favorite, absolutely favorite exchange in this film uh, is very Sturgis-like. It's the one between Mott and Breen talking about Kissinger getting the Nobel Peace Prize. And Mott says, our guy did bring peace. And Breen says, but there wasn't a war. And Mott says, all the greater accomplishment. That, that's the kind of pretzel logic that you get in some of Sturgis's exchanges, like the, the one about Pittsburgh, right? You know, they love, they love it in Pittsburgh. What do they know? In, they know what they like in Pittsburgh. If they knew what they like, they wouldn't live in Pittsburgh. <laughs> so I, it seems to me it's cut from the same, same cloth. And that was another reason I wanted to kind of connect those films. Yeah. I would say this, this, um, this screenplay was amazing. And uh, it's, I think they're, they're, pretty much great performances uh up and down and it's fun to see hoffman and de niro i think the scenes with the two of them together and 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 um it makes it feel like a very kind of late 90s movie but but Anne haish as part of that triumvirate mm. of people just you know batting things back and forth and i think she she has such an interesting arc too because at the beginning when she encounters breen <clears throat> she's one of those people who's like you know how are how are we going to sell this to people? How are people going to buy this? And Breen's like, it, they don't have to. Like, like it's like like the, the things you're concerned about don't matter. And by the end, when they are back to the White House, she is she sounds more like Mots. Yes, you know when they're when they're kind of in the the little war room down there, and she's like, we are being proactive. We're doing this. We're doing this. And it's like, oh, she had she has been on a journey as well. Um, which I just I find that like I find her following her character through this uh really interesting yeah uh so what do you have for us for next week 
Well, okay. So um, for next week, I, I was thinking about clever scripts and satire. And so I want to go back to a classic film from 1950 uh, with a Hollywood director we haven't encountered yet, Joseph Mankiewicz, uh, Herman's cousin. So I want to watch All About Eve uh, from, uh, from 1950. So, oh, fantastic. This is a movie I have never seen. So yeah, I'm, Betty, I, Betty, yeah, Betty Davis and, uh, oh gosh, uh, uh, Anne Bancroft. Um, yeah. So if, if you, if you like a clever script, you're gonna, you're gonna love this film. That is great. I am so excited. I love when we watch things that I, I have never encountered before. I don't know the first thing about this movie or what it's about, and that's the best place to be. Yeah, don't 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 read anything, Sam. Just stick it on and see what happens. It's, it's actually on the Criterion Channel. Uh, Fantastic. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Barrett, thank you so much for uh, for recommending this movie. This is, as I said, this is a movie that I watched when it came out. I had a few memories of, but I don't think I would have ever revisited it. And now I th actually think like this is a it's it's a there's some tough things to deal with in this movie but i think it i think this is a really really interesting movie a really interesting dark satire a really funny movie with some great performances so thank you for recommending this and we will be back next week to talk about all about eve in the video store <laughs>